The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in free. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. My guest today is very recently retired anteater and former director of undergraduate undeclared advising, Kimberly Ayala. In her 40 years at UCI, she was transformed into a scholar, a leader, a researcher, and a citizen of the world. She created networks that taught, coached, and mentored her for future years. Throughout her life, Kim has experienced challenges. The skills and knowledge she learned at UCI have assisted her greatly. Welcome, Kim, to UCI Conversations. How are you today? Thank you. Very well. Great to hear. Why don't we start at the beginning? Where did you grow up, and when did you start thinking about college? I was born in Pasadena, California, and for most of my schooling, lived in Pasadena. And then we moved to Irvine as a family. My parents got transfers to this city that was unknown in the map called Irvine. It was farms and fields and uh, very, very basic things for kids to do while we were here. Yeah. What year was that, Kim? We moved here in 72. Okay. I actually grew up in the city of Orange. So I remember it well, like Irvine was, you knew the name, but there wasn't anything here. <laughs> That's correct. There were no signals along the entire route of Culver from the 5 freeway to beyond the 405. And everywhere you looked, there were strawberry fields and bean fields and nothing else. Right. It was so remote, it was hard to find UCI back in those days. That's correct. And I didn't know what a university was. It was just a foreign place for me. Right. So what school did you transfer to when you came down here? I went to University High School. Oh, okay. It had just recently opened, and it was a very small high school at the time. And were you thinking, well, heck, UCI is across the street. Maybe I'll um, go there? No. Actually, I was more interested in the social life, and I actually took classes that my friends were taking. Many of my friends were on a college track, which I didn't know existed, but their parents were coaching them to take classes like physics and chemistry and college English. And when it came to registering for classes, I took classes with them. They'd say, well, what classes are you taking? And I'd say, I really haven't decided. And they'd say, okay, well, why don't you consider taking physics with me? And I'm like, okay, sounds good. Uh, <laughs> that little class, I, physics. Yes, or chemistry or, you know, just different classes because their parents had uh, coached them to take these classes. When I met with my advisor at the beginning of my senior year to plot out the final year of classes, he said, wow, you're working at Sears, South Coast Plaza, and that's a great opportunity for you to work your way up in the ranks. And I said, my friends are going to college. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means? And he said, well, people like you, you're Mexican-American. People like you don't go to college. I wouldn't recommend that you do that. There aren't very many people who attend college with your background. So I thought, he's a professional. He's been on campus for a number of years. He must know what he's talking about. 
So I went home and I said, I met with my advisor and he said I should work my way up through the ranks at Sears. My parents did not have a college education. My father worked at a grocery store and my mom was a secretary. And they said, okay, he must know what he's talking about. And when it came time for my friends to apply to college, usually you applied to college in November. And back in the day, you applied for a primary choice for the University of California and a secondary choice. And at the time, most people applied to UCLA or Berkeley as their first choice and one of the other campuses as a second choice. So my friend was applying to UCLA. And so I applied to UCLA and her backup college was UC Irvine. And so I did the same thing. And lo and behold, I got accepted to UC Irvine. And I was wondering, what did I get myself into? I don't even know what exactly I applied for. Mm-hmm. And so I entered UCI. And the first quarter at UCI, I hated it. There were very few students of color. You could count the African-American, Chicano, Latino, Asian-American, and Native American students on your fingers and toes. There were about 20 of us on campus. It was a very different campus than it is today. Uh, It was very Caucasian. And the basics, you know, I didn't know where the bathrooms were. I didn't know how to navigate the university. And I remember at orientation, the gentleman that was talking to us said something like, look in front of you, look to each side of you and behind you. Three of you won't be here by the end of the year. And I'm thinking, wow, they're all looking at me not being here. And I'm looking at all these new freshmen. And I was scared to death. Right, I bet. I felt like I didn't belong, that somehow that counselor was correct. Mm -hmm. And I would be found out that I didn't belong at UC Irvine. So you obviously stayed. So what changed? What evolved? Well, the summer before I enrolled at UCI, I met this student who was graduating from UCI, and she was assigned to me. And Mm -hmm. she sat down with me and asked what my major was going to be. And I happened to pick psychology because in high school I had taken a psychology class and I really didn't know what the other majors, what they meant. What, it, what would I be studying if I was a political science major or, uh, you know, a different major? So she sat down with me and she planned my four years. To this day, I still have that four-year plan. She said, you take your writing your first year. You take your math your second year. You go abroad. You get involved. You need to be an intern. And she just wrote out all these things that I needed to do to be successful. And I believed her because she had just graduated from UCI and she was headed to Harvard for her PhD. And I thought, wow, this woman must know what she's talking about because she lived it. Right. So her name was Jeannie Manessi and went to my classes and they were okay. I just always felt maybe, you know, at at test time is when I'm going to be found out. But I read my books, and I studied, and I did well. I didn't end up on the dean's honor list my first quarter, but I survived off probation, and I was happy about that. So anyway, I met a girl in my class, and she had gotten involved in a club. And she said, why don't you come with me? And she kept nagging me because I'm like, I don't want to go to your club. I don't know anything about that. So about the end of the quarter, first quarter, I gave it. I said, okay, I'll go with you to this club meeting. And lo and behold, it was called the Early Academic Outreach Program. Wow. And it now, it's still on campus, and now it's called the Center for Educational Partnerships. And it's always been a collaboration that supports primarily junior high and high school students in preparation for college. And I thought, wow had I known what college was about when I was younger, my life might have been a little bit different. And so I started helping kids on Saturdays during the something called Saturday Academy. It was giving back and I was learning along the way how to navigate the university through upper division students and 
mentor supervisors who took an interest in me and, you know, would talk to me and we would, you know, have this, this relationship. And for me, relationships are really important. Wow. That's great. So you navigated through your four years and graduated in psychology, right? That's correct. I was very active as an undergrad. I was a peer academic advisor in the School of Social Sciences. I was an administrative intern in the Dean of Students office. I was on the University Center Board. Those were all the things that Jeannie had put on my list of things to do. She also put on my list for me to be an RA. I was a summer RA, but I never fulfilled that one item that she had put on the list of things that I needed to do. The most important part of all of that was mentors. Mm. What was RA, by the way? Uh, Resident assistants living in the dorms during the year with a group of students. Gotcha. So during that time, you also did a semester at sea or or study abroad? Can you tell us a little little bit about that? That was life-changing. Again, while I was an administrative intern, I worked for the assistant dean of students, Randy Lewis, and he had been on semester at sea as a staff member. And he said, you must travel abroad while you're an undergraduate. And I said, my parents won't go for this. You know, we don't have a lot of money, and I don't think my parents would support this. So he said, no, this is really important. So he coached me in what to say to my parents. And actually, (laughs) he uh, requested the semester at sea application. And he sat down with me at some point and asked me all the questions on the application and said, sign here. And I did. He was my mentor. I looked up to him. But I really didn't think I would be admitted. Mm -hmm. So it was sent away. And lo and behold, a month or two later, I received word that I had been admitted into the program. And it was so life-changing because I circumnavigated the world. So we went across the Pacific to, you know, to Asia, to the Middle East, up the Suez Canal to Egypt, Greece, Spain, and across the Atlantic back home to the United States. We, our port was Fort Lauderdale, and from there I flew home. As a young person, I always thought what happened on the other side of the world, I really didn't care because it didn't impact me directly. Mm-hmm. And I was growing up and, and learning about all of these places, but with Semester at Sea, I learned that the world was very small in comparison to what the way I thought earlier. And what, what happens in those other places does have an impact on the world, you know, whether it's pollution or it's disagreements and wars and poverty. And those things stuck with me throughout my life. Oh, wow. Excuse me just for a moment, Kim, to let my listeners who are just tuning in, if you joined us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is former UCI Director of Undergraduate and Undeclared Advising, Kimberly Ayala, and we're just talking about her semester at sea and what a life-changing event it was for her. Kim, do you have one or two highlights of your trip? One of the highlights was being at the pyramids in Egypt. Mm. And we actually got to go inside the pyramids to King Tut's tomb. And it was very hot in there and very small, the path to go actually inside. Mm. And I learned so much. And I also got to ride a camel around the pyramids. That was just exciting. Another day, we went to the Taj Mahal, and to be honest with you, I never knew even what that, that existed until I was on the ship, and they started to talk about the opportunity to actually go to the Taj Mahal, and the thought that this king had created this white Taj Mahal for the love that he had for his wife, and he was going to make a black marble Taj Mahal across the river, and it was supposed to be Uh, joined across the river with a silver bridge because of this great love he had for his wife. But his children didn't like that he was using all of his finances. So they stopped it and they actually imprisoned him 
in a fort where he could see the white Taj Mahal where his wife was buried and all his life. And then when he passed, he's buried there as well. But it, that was just the love, that, that unconditional love, that pure love that he, this person had for another person was so impactful. Mm, yes. So you graduated with your degree in psychology, and then did you go right back to school for your teaching credential? That's correct. I actually thought that I was graduating. I had all my documents reviewed prior to spring quarter. And during the summer that I graduated, I actually went abroad the second time. This time I spent a couple of months in Mexico studying and learning about where my family was from. And when I got back, I got a phone call that said, Kim, you know, how are you doing? How's your summer? Uh, By the way, you're not graduating. And I said, what do you mean I'm not graduating? And they said there was an error. And I thought, ha ha, jokes on me. Yes, okay. You know, this isn't funny. And they said, no, really, actually, you're not graduating. So I was short of class. So I did have to continue fall quarter where I thought I was done. And so while I was there, I thought, well, if I only have one class to take, what else could I do? Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with an academic advisor, and I loved working with young people. I've always liked teaching. So I started my teaching credential studies while I was finishing up that one class and just decided to continue with earning my teaching credential. And I actually taught junior high for two years after receiving that credential. It was oh, a one-year program. Gotcha. What junior high did you teach at? I taught at Lakeside Middle School in Irvine. Oh, okay. What happened then? Well, I had my credential. And as a young teacher, you have to get your contract renewed for five years, and then you become tenured at that time. Mm-hmm. So I first year, I got picked up right away for my second year because a person was on maternity leave. But the second year, my principal told me that he thought that I would be fine, I'd be coming back to the school. But in June, he didn't have a contract or a position for me at the time. So I thought, okay, I had some savings, not a big deal. This is like summer vacation, like the year before. So I had fun and traveled a little bit. And then July came and he still didn't have a position. And the beginning of August came and he said, don't worry, I'm going to have one. But I began to worry because I didn't have very much funds left. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I would apply for a position just in case as a backup. And I applied to UC Irvine to work in the continuing education office. Mm -hmm. And I was hired as uh, administrative assistant. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my principal before I accepted the position. And he said, I'm really sorry, I don't have one at this time, but I really am confident that I will have a position for you. So this is now the end of August. And I thought, you know, I need to make a decision. I can go with something that's for sure, and I have that position, or I can wait for the unknown. So I took the administrative assistant position, and lo and behold, middle or end of September, my principal calls and says, we have a position for you. And at this point, you know, I had been calling him all the time and I asked him for 24 hours to think about it. And in that time, I really uh, did some soul searching and pros and cons. And I thought I could help students along the way and assist them at UC Irvine. And I loved UCI. I was an anteater through and through. I have every anteater you can imagine, stuffed animal, plastic animal, But I just love UCI and the UCI family. So I did everything that I tell students not to do. I was hired in August. And in December, I saw that there was an academic advising position in the Division of Undergraduate Education and applied for it and was chosen to be an academic advisor. And then a couple of years later, the director left. And I was chosen to be the director for undergraduate undeclared students. Back in the day, it was called Undecided Undeclared. And our name changed throughout my time. But if I think about it, 
UCI was established in 1965, and right now it's 45 years old. I think I did the math correctly. And 40 years of my life, 36 as a, the, uh, working at UCI and four years of undergrad, I really grew up on the campus mm-hmm. and with the campus. And I have loved what I, what I did in advising students. I really felt that working with undeclared students and the position that I held was not just a job. It wasn't just a career. It was my vocation. It is where the stars and everybody, everything lined up for this position for me. Every day I woke up and thought, wow, I wonder what new people I will meet today. I wonder what new problems I'll be able to solve today. I just loved every minute of working as the director in the Division of Undergraduate Education. That's fantastic. And you stayed in that position. Is that correct? That's correct. After I got the director, because I worked, like I said, for two, about two years as an, an advisor and then moved up to being the director. Yeah. So how long were you in that job? Like 35 years? 36 or, years. 36 years. Yes. What, wow. And, and uh, I, you know, just from serving on the What Matters to Me and Why um, Speaker Series Committee with you and, and just knowing a little bit about you, you're really well known on campus just because of that position, I think. You know, all the undergraduates, do they all know you or... Is it just? I would say that many, many hundreds of thousands of students over the last thirty-six years have have met me and know me. Uh, I can't go to the grocery store or to the mall or even on vacation. My husband teases me that I always find an anteater wherever (laughs) we are, and might be because I'm so proud to be an anteater that when I travel, I wear anteater t-shirts. Uh-huh. So, of course, that draws people to say, you know, did you go to UCI? And I say that I've worked there. And I either get my cousin, my brother, somebody they know, a friend went to UCI, or they themselves went to UCI uh, at some point in time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I'm very proud of that. And I think I like to promote UCI wherever I go. In fact, when I travel, I take my little Peter the Anteater with me and take pictures of him with me uh, in Alaska or in China or wherever I happen to be because I just think Peter is right there with me. And the things I learned, whether it's being an undergraduate or a staff person, I contribute that to UCI. Yeah, 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 yeah. I just have this big grin on my face because you definitely are the heart of UCI. You just exude the love of UCI. That's great. Well, in addition uh, to the director of advising, I was also director for the campus-wide peer academic advising program. So there were about a hundred of those students every year that I trained. I did a, a holistic training with them during the spring quarter, and then they would get training within all of the academic schools on campus during the academic year. So I had students from across the campus that I worked with and I've kept in touch with all these years. I also felt it was really important to make a contribution to UCI. Again, this wasn't just a job. This wasn't just a career. But how could I make UCI better? So one of the things that's kind of institutionalized now as a institutional change was one year I met with a student And she was a young single mom with two boys. And she happened to tell me that her boys wouldn't have a Christmas this year because she didn't have any funding for Christmas. And I thought, wow, every child should have some kind of Christmas or something to open. And so when she left, I went to my dean and said, I met this family and I'd like to ask you if you would support the idea of adopting them for Christmas and our office would fulfill some wishes and have a holiday dinner. And she was agreeable. So I called the student and I said, I introduced myself, you know, I met with her the day before, and that we wanted to adopt her family for the holidays and buy her sons a few gifts and a holiday dinner. And she said, Kim, she said, 
thank you for the idea, but I have to pass. And I said, can I ask you why? And she said, because I have a neighbor who has three little girls, all, you know, tiny girls, five years, six years, seven about, and they need it more than us. And I said, okay, we're still going to adopt you, but let me see what I can do for this other family. So I went to the registrar's office and said, I have this family. And they said, oh, we're happy to do that. And yeah. so one of the little girls wrote a letter to Santa and she said, I would like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> and I mean, we, they also got, you know, a turkey and other things, but this little girl asking just for food, not even for a toy that just touched my heart. Yeah. So that Christmas season, I had about 25 families in Verano, which is the graduate student housing on campus. And I had all my friends, you know, in the administration building or across the campus, they all adopted these families. So I did this for a couple of years, but I outgrew it. It was too big for one person. Mm -hmm. So now it still exists and it's UCI Helping Hands and the staff assembly is in charge of it now. So that has been in existence for probably about 30 years because I was pretty young when I did this. First I had it and then the academic and professional women took the program over. And then after that, like I said, the staff assembly and the ombudsman co-sponsor the Helping Hands program now. Wow. Wow. Fantastic. And so there were things like that throughout my career that I really wanted to leave a lasting legacy on campus. In addition to the adoptive Verona family, I created a class, undergraduate class for students to kind of level the playing field and introduce students to the campus and to the policies and procedures and terminology that the campus has. And that's been in existence probably for about 25 plus years. And we've had many students go through the program. In addition to helping our freshmen as part of the class, we also have a secondary class for discussion leaders. And these are upper division students who help with the discussion sections of the class and also mentor our freshmen as well. So that's kind of another legacy that I'm very proud to leave. But I also, you said everybody knows me. I've been on the Chancellor's Advisory Committee on the status of staff and the Chancellor's Advisory Committee on African-American students on campus. I have volunteered to work in the Cross-Cultural Center and be part of the annual Rainbow Festival, as well as graduation, helping with that. So I would say that as a student or a staff or even a faculty member, go outside your comfort area and you know, volunteer, get to know an area of the campus that you're not familiar with. And again, you're developing your network of people to assist the general population and help UCI to grow. Where is the undergraduate undeclared offices? Our office is room 256 in Aldridge Hall. We're right across the lobby from the registrar's office. Oh, okay. Excellent. Just excuse me for a moment. One more time, Kim. Okay. If you're just joining us, you're listening to UCI Conversations, and I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest is, as of June 30th, 2020, retired former UCI Director of Undergraduate Undeclared Advising, Kimberly Ayala. And we're just talking about her career and things that she's done on campus and, and what's involved with her area. Kim, did the department evolve over the years? Is, is it different today than it was 25 years ago, 30 years ago? Absolutely. The office, the undergraduate undeclared office has grown. We had probably about 200 students when I started back in 1984. And now we have well over 2000 students. Another thing that I'm very proud of is, and I think the campus should be proud of this as well. It, well excuse me just for a moment. When you say 200 students, are, are you saying like literally undergrad students? Undeclared students. Those are oh, students undeclared. Students okay. Just undeclared. Yes. Okay. So, Under and, and now there's 2,000? 
undeclared students. Wow. Okay. So we had started out with two, two academic advisors, myself and one other person. And we've grown to have five academic advisors and two admin assistants. Again, we've grown just as the student population has grown. Again, one of the things I'm very proud of too is for many students, they enter the university not knowing what their major might be. They check a box or they think they know what the major's about. And until they actually take classes and experience that major, then they have a sense of what that's about. But for many students, checking a box, you may not know when you're 17 years old, when you apply for the university a year before you actually attend, what you want to do with your life. You're 17, 18 years old. Many of us change our ideas, our goals throughout our lifetime. But at 17 and 18, it's a time of discovery. It's a time to think about the world, to think about themselves, their families. And so we allow students to change. So if you came in as a science major and decide, oh, you know, this really isn't what I thought it was going to be, but I sure have a passion for studying Chicano Latino studies, or I have a passion for history. And what is the social ecology major? You know, I don't know anything about that. So sometimes students, they change. And so we allow them to change to undeclared until they've satisfied their prerequisites to declare that major. And maybe they'll get a little experience in taking classes, get to know the advisors in the, that academic school, and be ready to declare with the coursework that they need in order to declare a major. So we have a lot of students coming through us at different times, in addition to the students that we have coming in as brand new freshmen. Interesting. Is there one major that undergrads have more confusion about than others? There's a couple. One is something called social ecology. And I've had parents call me and say, does that mean my child's going to be picking up trash? Ecology, you know, I understand that that's kind of taking care of our world. But, you know, what's the social part of it? What is that? There are only two social ecology programs in the nation. That's one that people ask a lot of questions about. What other areas are people confused about? People are confused about, well, to some degree, students want to go into medicine. But they don't realize that it's not just biology. To be a pre-med, you need physics, you need chemistry, you need calculus, you need lab classes. And in actuality, you don't have to be a bio major to go into medical school. Uh, You don't need a degree at all to go to medical school. But what you do need are all the prerequisites. And lo and behold, if you happen to be a bio major, you do satisfy all the prerequisites to get into medical school. But if you look at any medical school application, you actually don't have to have a degree. Gotcha. How about the hardest? Is there one? Recently, I heard chemistry. I've always thought physics. Is there one that's considered the hardest? I would not say there's one considered the hardest. If you think about your own life, and what you're exposed to and what you find comes easy and natural to you, that's probably the area that you should major in. I have people who have been on probation from all majors. I've known of people. The most important thing, I think, while you're an undergrad is not only to learn things inside the classroom, and there's always help available to students, whether it's free help, in tutoring through the departments, they offer free tutoring. There's the Learning and Academic Resource Center that has tutors that actually attend the same classes you attend and then help you. That is for a fee. But I would say to get involved in those extracurricular type of activities, because it was through those extracurricular activities that I learned public speaking. I learned how to work with individuals and with people. The mentoring is very important, and I've mentored and supported undergrads. I think one of the things that I would encourage all students to do is to find a mentor on campus, primarily a staff mentor, but there's also upper division mentors if you're a lower division student. 
There are faculty mentors. But find someone that you click with, something about the relationship, and somebody who's knowledgeable, somebody who can encourage you during difficult times and celebrate with you when you get that A or B on a midterm. Just somebody else to work with you as you're on the campus because none of us got through a university or even a career on our own. There are always people in our lives who help us navigate new situations. They help us, whether in your career or as a undergrad, don't be afraid to seek somebody out, somebody you trust, somebody who really wants to take an interest in you. And there are a lot of people on campus who work on a college campus because they like college students. This is a very great time in a young person's life. It's exciting. It's, you know, you're meeting all kinds of new people and you're learning all kinds of new things. Right. So was it 1978 that you came to UCI as an undergrad? Yes. Back in those days, the campus was so new and young. Has it just been a gradual buildup and expansion? Or do you feel like there was a certain period where it just exploded? Well, when I entered UCI, there were cows on campus. There were... (laughs) And you could bring your horse. If you happen to have a horse that you wanted on campus, you go allowed to bring your horse. Chancellor Aldridge would ride his horse onto the campus, into Aldridge Park, during our annual open house. And there was a lot of parking on campus. Uh, there was nothing across the street, there was, except there was a trailer, which was Bank of America, Right. Uh, There was a trailer that was actually a small, I guess, saloon. They served (laughs) alcohol, and it was a trailer. It was very small. But that's all there was on the campus. And it was slow going at first. And my colleagues and I, I have a very close friend, Jill Halvax, who was on campus for many years with me. We always said we wanted to have UCI be a destination campus, like UCLA and Berkeley. We wanted to be first choice campus for students. And we always were promoting UCI wherever we went. And slowly, buildings started to show up. And UCI was known as, um, hold on a second. Under construction indefinitely? Yeah. So yes, it was under construction indefinitely. And everywhere you went, there were new buildings. And I would say probably in the late 90s, early 2000s, there were a lot of new buildings. Housing was expanding. And our ARC, our Anteater Recreation Center, that's where the cows were. And that's where the horses were. And so that area changed. And it's a beautiful facility for students to work out and to socialize. We also had a trailer park on campus out by Physical Sciences. And you could bring your trailer and hook up to the electricity, and that was a very inexpensive place to live on campus. So that had to go in order for more buildings to be built and parking lots to be built. The Cross-Cultural Center actually started out as a trailer out by Humanities. UCI was one of the first UC campuses to have a Cross-Cultural Center, and that was very exciting when that building was being built. I was on the University Center board when the University Center was built. There was no place for students to gather on campus. It was very much a commuter school. And you'd come to school, take your classes, and leave. Because, again, there was no place to meet. There was Gateway, which is now Gateway Study Center. And that was a cafeteria. And now it is a study center. But there were just so few places to hang out. So those things drew more students to the campus. When you say university-centered, are you referring to the student center? Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. But that was just, you know, an empty space. And most things on the outside of Ring Road have been relatively new. The inside of Ring Road, like Social Science Tower, Social Sciences, a lecture hall, and the inside of the campus circle. Those are older buildings, but the outside all have 
been built mm. in the last 30 some years. Mm -hmm. Do you have a favorite story of helping an undergrad that for some reason they were struggling and you had a big impact? Wow, there's so many stories. Okay, I'll pick this one. I had a student, he was on probation and I said to him, would you like to meet with me and we can go over some study strategies? And I did this for more than one student. And he said, begrudgingly, okay, I, I'll meet with you every week. And so I said, what do you think contributed to your poor grades? And so he said, you know, I'm not reading the book as quickly as the professor wants me to and just different things. So I said, okay, well, we'll concentrate on that. So every week he'd bring his books to my office for an hour and I could pick any book I wanted and look at the syllabus and whatever the, the syllabus indicated that were things that he should have accomplished, I would ask him questions about that. So I could open the book and I'd say, okay, tell me a little bit about Freud or tell me a little bit about the theory of evolution. Whatever was in the book, I just opened it and whatever it said, I would ask him questions. And so I was holding him accountable for the information that he should know in the book. And so we went on for the 10 weeks and he came in very proud and he said, first midterm, he got a B and he was just ecstatic because he had never received anything above a C. And so he got that B and he was happy and we continued to work together. And the second midterm came and he got an A minus and he was like, I just can't believe I'm getting these grades. And I said, but we're putting in the time and the effort and you go home and you have to study on your own. I'm just asking you questions and holding you accountable to make sure you've done what you're supposed to do. And he ended up with an A minus in the class. And afterwards he came in and he said, if it wasn't for you offering to do this above and beyond, I would never have passed any of my classes. But he ended up on the Dean's honor list. And it was so funny because the next quarter, after he got his grades, he came to see me and was so happy. And he said, can we continue to do this? <laughs> and I said, you have this. You have this down. You know how to study now. You just do what we did last quarter. You read what you're supposed to read. You know, maybe find a study buddy in one of your classes for them to ask you questions. But I said, you've got this. You know how to do this now. And so that they kind of would say, please. And I'd say, if you run into a snag, but I don't expect that you will run into anything. And this was so common. This was kind of the, you know, whenever there was somebody who just, you know, really wanted a little extra help. And I just felt like this person was more lost than other students. In the undeclared advising office, we do help our students in academic difficulty by running study tables with them and again, holding them accountable. They meet once a week with an advisor. Uh, so that kind of evolved from me meeting with one-on-one -on -one students because as the number of my students grew, I couldn't do this with everybody. Mm -hmm. So we did develop a study table, a time for students in small groups to get together. And um, one of the advisors will do a small study strategy lesson with them not long but essentially being a quiet place that they could study mm -hmm. and I would say that 99% of the students who participate in our study table they get off probation or their grades have improved tremendously from the quarter before so I really think that reaching out and touching students and being available for students is so important on a big campus Sometimes you lose that personal touch and that needs to continue because this is a new adventure for students, even though for a staff, we might have been doing it for a few years, but it's just that attention to students and being there to talk to them in person. Mm. Thank you for that, Kim. And I understand that before you retired, you received the Latinx Staff Award. Can you explain the award, what it is? Sure. Uh, so throughout my uh, tenure at UCI, all the years I was there, I earned many recognitions, the Lods and Laurels Award for staff, the Leadership Award, and the Latinx Award was given to me. 
spring quarter of 2020, and it was recognizing my contributions to assisting Latino students on campus. Again, whenever I could reach out and and work with uh, different clubs and organizations, or I would be able to give them some information for their club or for their for their organization. Uh, so this was uh, uh, staff and students wrote to the awards committee and nominated me for this award. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, uh, usually there's a big dinner and people are recognized, but they promised me that next spring uh, that we'll have a, a, a dinner to, uh, to discuss my contributions at that time. Excellent. How has your office been uh, affected by COVID? Well, we had to learn very quickly. All of my staff are in the business and the careers of advising because they love students. And personal attention is what we pride ourselves on. So being remote, Mm. we had to figure this out. Zoom has become a new best friend. And it was a struggle, I'll have to admit, for me during the spring quarter because I'm less technology savvy. I'm a people person, and this COVID remote stuff is really difficult. But I've mastered it, and my staff have just excelled in Zoom. And we have been available throughout the time of the pandemic. A student who wants to talk to an advisor can call our front desk and my receptionist will field the call and then refer that person to one of the advisors. So we figured out the technology so that it's not just email because email is very tough when it comes to advising because there's so many parts of it that if you're doing this, then this. If you choose to get involved in this club or organization, these might be the things that you learn. So email is so stagnant that we talk through what a student might, their needs might be. So it's been tough, but I'm very proud of the staff in the UU advising office. And I think all of the students have continued to be served reaching out to them exceptionally. Gotcha. So now you're retired. I know you still have some involvement on campus. What does retirement look like for you and what are your plans? I thought you might ask me this question. (laughs) Looking forward, I think I'm going to be volunteering at UCI. I've already been asked to continue to be a member of What Matters to Me and Why, I think it's a great program that has staff and faculty share their life experiences with the campus. I have also been invited to do a guest lecture in university studies sometime during fall quarter. And I think I'm going to find a group of students, probably first gen, that I will look forward to mentoring. I also want to travel. I had always thought that the summer after I retired that I would travel. Thailand was at the top of my list, but that did not come to fruition. And I think it'll be a while till I feel comfortable traveling abroad. But I've been doing a lot of research on our national parks across the country. And so road trips are definitely in the foreseeable future. I can't wait to visit with family and friends face-to-face, in person, and I do mandalas. It's a very relaxing adult coloring, if you will, but there are different patterns that I create, and then I spend time putting color to those. And one of the things I've always wanted to learn to do is glass blowing. Wow, excellent. Well, Kim, thank you very much for spending the hour with us. It's going to be great to still have you around campus for assorted things. And best wishes on your retirement. Thank you for all your contributions that you've made to UCI over the decades. And 
just have a wonderful retirement. Thank you, Kevin. It's been an honor and a privilege and very humbling to have been asked to do this, but it's very exciting as well. So I look forward to hearing the broadcast. Thank you again to recently retired former director of UCI's undergraduate undecided advisement program, Kim Ayala. She had an amazing story to tell about how she ended up coming to UCI as a student after being initially discouraged by her high school counselor and then returning to campus to work for over 40 years. It was an extraordinary period of growth for the school, and Kim has been part of the heart and soul of that growth. We are lucky to have had her and blessed to have her continue. And now turning the page, coming up next at 5 p.m. on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine is Entrepreneur Nation with Ash Kumra, where every week he discusses current business topics with key business leaders in the community. Stay tuned. As always, thank you to Fred Kaplan, piano blues keyboardist extraordinaire, for providing all my show theme music from his excellent CD, Signifying. He's got the groove. If you'd like to hear an encore of this show or any other past UCI Conversations show, simply go to the web at www.bossenmeyer.com. It's phonetic, www.bossenmeyer.com, where my show archive is available 24-7. And you can always reach me by email at kboss at kuci.org. I respond to all inquiries. I've been your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer reminding you to keep vigilant against COVID-19. We are in this together, and we will get through this. Keep wearing your mask and social distancing. Keep working hard and making a difference. You will succeed. Have a pleasant good evening. So long, everybody.